for October 21st, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 277. So you think you can terminate. 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 Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matthew Rather. Uh, Tonight on the podcast, we have an interview with uh, the creator of Terminator the Second, Marshall Weber. Uh, Terminator the Second being a stage show and uh, soon to be a downloadable video uh, where the story of Terminator 2 is told using entirely dialogue taken from William Shakespeare. That's coming up in just a second. I mean, the guy like practically wrote it for us, right? <laughs> Uh, I'm so excited. And, oh, God. Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be a good conversation. I can't wait for that. Uh, but, but first, panel, your question. Um, the star uh, of Girl Meets World, the, the actress who played Topanga. Uh, Girl Meets World? Boy Meets World. May as well have been called Girl Meets World because... Well, though they had, that, was not the, that was a spinoff. That, oh, that's right. the upcoming spinoff. Never God, mind. Yeah, we no should mind. start this over again from the beginning. <laughs> but no, soldiering on of Boy Meets World, uh, Danielle Fischel uh, has uh, gotten married. That's uh, fantastic, and we wish her all happiness and all the best. But um, if you are my age... Uh, Topanga was a serious adolescent crush um, for many of us growing up. And I, I, you know, I remember reading a BuzzFeed listicle a little while ago about uh, why your relationship is not going to be good uh, as that between Ben Savage and Danielle Fischel on, or Fischel, Fischel or Fischel. I don't know the official pronunciation of her name. Uh, but uh, the, why your relationship was never going to be as good um, as uh, that between these two characters on uh, on Boy Meets World, uh, and she now the actual real life actress is uh, no longer available, uh, and and good luck to her in her new marriage. But uh, it it leads us to this week's question panel: uh, What former adolescent crush have you lost? To the tragedy of a happy marriage. <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's ab- the absolute worst. But um, but first in the alphabet is Peter Fenzel. So drink. So you know what? Whenever somebody that I knew as an unmarried person gets married, it feels like I've passed through some sort of wormhole into an alternate reality. Uh, per, like it's almost as if I've, uh, it's almost as if I've sliding. I'm slide. I'm a slider. Uh, what I'm saying is that. Uh, Okay, I'm saying Sabrina Lloyd from Sliders was a big crush of mine, and I couldn't get the trip. I'm so broken up in thinking about Topanga's marriage and the marriage of all these old crushes. Uh, I'm reading here on IMDb that Sabrina Lloyd now has a child that she adopted in Uganda and two cats named Lucy and Theodore and a very happy marriage to a man named Ross Smith. And that sounds lovely, and it breaks my heart. So there you go. (laughs) I mean, obviously, these these are things that could never be, right? Like, these are... I'm not saying it really is like a loss of a thing that one actually had um but it raises the question of what having a thing is right um and and what a loss of it is so yeah so sabrina lloyd is is wade from sliders she was in sports night which is spectacular she's also um 
I think she's in the uh, she's in the show Numbers. Oh, is she Josh well. Molina's love interest in Sports Night? Uh, yes, yes, she is. Yep. Got it. She's total manic pixie dream girl before I knew that it was morally wrong to want such a thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Pete, the, the, the heart, the manic pixie heart has its reasons that the manic pixie reason knows not of. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> As manic know. pixie Blaise Pascal said. <laughs> oh, perhaps the man cannot endure the manic pixie girl in his age that he... How does the line go for much ado about nothing? Uh, the man much seeketh the meat, can't endure the meat in his age that he loved in his youth or something. I don't know. I can't get it right. I'm, I'm totally... I'm just devastated by the Topanga news and my words. Can't now. endure. That's funny, because old guys can't get it up. Oh, pishtosh. <laughs> uh, Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. What's, uh, what's yours? All right, so this is, uh, by the way, sorry to interrupt, Mark. This is more autobiographical than we usually do uh, for a question. You know, this is like uh, deep, deep, uh, deep, deep inside. Oh yeah. Um, although, in this particular instance, what boy meets boy meets world is that the show that we're talking about? I I didn't see it. It's like not on my radar. She was not um, a childhood childhood crush of mine. Um, but you know who was? I'm not ashamed to admit this. Um, Gadget from Chippendale Rescue Rangers. <laughs> she, uh, you know, what can you say? Attractive, um, feminized mouse with, uh, very handy with, with, um, with tools and fixing things. What's not to like, huh? Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like um, I've confessed to the same thing in past podcasts, and I and I remember being really shocked when she came up on like a top twenty list of retro crushes uh, that out of a poll that was taken of a bunch of people. Okay, and I think all right. Yeah, and I think she just, deserves to be on that list of top twenty retro crushes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So as to her marital status, now um, there's two ways to look at this. One is the voice actress who played Gadget, um, Tress McNeil, um, on both IMDb and Wikipedia. I have found nothing that indicates a marital status, so she might actually still be available. Um, but unfortunately for Gadget, the character herself in the show, um, I'm going to have to assume that somewhere in the Chippendale Rescue Rangers expanded universe slash fanfic universe, um, that's not slash fic, you know what I mean, but like extended universe and or the uh, fan fiction universe of Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Um, Gadget eventually wound up with Chip or Dale and that uh, caused uh, the, the whichever one of them who didn't wind up with Gadget to have seething uh, jealousy and rage and sort of like they're the three of them are just trapped in this horrible um, situation where there's just resentment abounds all over. Um, so I guess I don't want to be any part of that. Excellent. Uh, my turn, I guess. Um, so uh, I'm going to go. I mean, my um, I, I actually hesitate to say my uh, uh, mine because um, her marriage turned out not to be happy. Uh, it's the uh, the 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 former former uh, future Mrs. Matthew Rather, uh, Katie Holmes, who played mm-hmm. Joe, Joey Potter on a little show called Dawson's Creek, uh, which was my jam. When I was uh, a, a younger man, so I'm I'm going to actually reach into my twenties and um, and uh, pick someone who who is happily married. Uh, Allison Holker, 
who was uh, on the second season of the reality competition show So You Think You Can Dance, which is pretty much the only reality show that I can stand. Uh, and those, by the way, uh, those dancers are awesome on that show, and they they have like worked and trained so hard. I don't like the I don't like the like undiscover you know the sort of discover a star diamond in the rough um, shows like uh, like American Idol. I don't like the you know stand in line to to audition uh shows or x factor or whatever because you know to me my experience of of performers of like very good and very powerful performers is that they have uh worked really really hard and have sacrificed a, a great deal in order to make it to whatever level they get to um and this was definitely true of of uh Allison Holker the one former future mrs Matthew Rather who is a dancer i mean who is an artist of such incredible uh expressive power um that uh i i mean words fail me in sort of describing how awesome her her dancing is uh but she married twitch who was a, uh, another dancer on the show, uh, who was a fan favorite, uh, who is an extremely charismatic fellow. And I wish them all the best. Uh, but uh, I'm, I was very sorry. I was very sorry to lose her to, um, to a better man, a better dancer, at least, than I. Uh, can, can I just also briefly voice my approval of So You Think You Can Dance? I actually watched almost all of season eight of So You Can Think You Can Dance back in 2011 when Melanie Moore was the winner of that season, I believe. And she was, I mean, she was a, a captivating uh, performer, I'm, I'm sure. And the kind Sasha, of person. Uh, I- Sasha was robbed. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. In season eight, Sasha was robbed. Yeah, I don't think that, that Melanie was the better dancer, but I felt like. Uh, not that she, she was not, a yeah, not that Melanie that- wasn't awesome. She was, she was totally awesome. Um, I, I I liked her. I liked a lot of things about her. I liked her for a lot of reasons, but but Sasha was to me the the greater artist in that in that season. I yeah, cannot believe also- we're having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> she was the more alienating though, and she didn't smile. It's like what I used to say about uh, about gosh, what Newt Gingrich, how he never kissed babies, and that was his biggest problem. Like Sasha, Ma- Sasha needed to do more baby kissing if she was going to win the votes. <laughs> right, so. It's a show. For, that's a show where all the judges are nice. That's the weirdest thing about so you that's one of I mean yes the one weird thing about so you can think you can dance is that they actually practice and are good at the thing that they're going to do before they do it right like which is really important and awesome it's not like oh I'm a terrible incompetent restaurateur however shall I have a good restaurant right like it's like no <laughs> you know no, it's like I'm a really good dancer, and uh, and I'm going to do this dance competition with other really good dancers. It's sort of like uh, it's like how the XFL didn't work out because they didn't have real football players. In it. It's like, you know, you want to think the NFL is a reality show of people who are actually good at football. And but, so but, you can, I mean, like my 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 I don't know my personal experience of being a performer is, it, and also like my you know knowledge of a lot of other performers is that it's not like you know I don't know if, if people aren't born with it i suppose some people are born with it but they're born with something but then you develop it through very hard work and dedication and sacrifice and and like those kids who are on so you think you can dance and i you know i call them kids because so many of them are like 19 um have like they never 
they never like had normal high school, you know, because they were working eight hours a day at the dance studio or something like that. They 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 really really. Um, put a lot of effort and a lot of like laudable sacrifice uh, behind pursuing this art or this this craft or this skill of theirs that's awesome. And uh, I don't know. I, I think we could do a lot more with a lot more of that that uh, discourse in our culture and a lot less of the sort of Susan Boyle, you know, discourse in our culture where it's like, Oh, television found someone who was just awesome. You know, it, it, it really like, um, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like television is a false consciousness. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a relationship. It's a relationship between performer and audience where the, um, uh, where the the what the the uh, economic conditions of the relationship uh, uh, d- 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 hide you know obscure certain certain aspects of the of the uh, the true nature of the relationship. Yeah, mm-hmm. Matt, I, I I get what you're going with this, but I think comparing singing and dancing in reality shows is a little bit apples and oranges. Um, there's something about singing that you know people can do more or less casually and can achieve a certain level of competence uh, that is just not applicable, I think, to dancing. Um, now, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're sort of, you might be more accomplished at, at both of them than I am, in fact. Um, but it's just thinking about singing like, uh, what's the other example you might, you might uh, decry is, uh, what's his name, like Paul Potts, the guy who won uh, for, his, for his opera singing and people saying what wasn't very good. Um, like, they... I don't want to totally diminish their their talent and, and their accomplishment. You know, like they they can get up there, they can deliver that three minute song in a way that uh, is is compelling and people like, right? Um, I and sort of you know at a level that you say oh, well, I will pay ninety nine cents to buy that on iTunes. Um, I just don't see uh, that ease of entry uh, being present in the same way with the with with the high level of dance. Yeah, I don't know. We don't have like Garage Band for dance, right? Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? We have uh, well, we have dance, dance, Central. dance Revolution, we have hmm. Dance Central. We have all this. So you did all the dance video games. No, I mean it's ironic though because on one hand, Mark, you're 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 right in that the thing that so okay so the thing that gets a person to sing in such a way that you want to buy their album, right? Like that's kind of like something that you just brought up as as a thing that doesn't necessarily require a great deal of formal training and or like sacrifice through youth and early adulthood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This both this goes in two directions. I feel like this sort of splits the problem in half. And one half are the like opera singers, right? Are the people who do sacrifice tremendous. Not just opera singers, but other sorts of committed singers in really dedicated and formal training programs who become really awesome at singing, but are still not the people whose albums you want to buy for economic reasons. They just there isn't as much demand for this particular sort of singing by the people who are buying albums. Right? There's a confounding lack of correlation between uh, being good at a thing and anyone giving a crap. Right? Like, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean that's too harsh to say, but like, but on the other side, you know, the best, best, best dancers. Were there not to be a so you think you can dance kind of show to showcase them, who would ever know who any of them are ever? Right? Like, I mean, do you know the name of any dancer other than ones who are important in a historical context? Right? Like, I mean, I, I don't. 
I mean, I mean, I'm sure I can, you know, rack my brains for various, like, musical theater performers and stuff, but, like, you know, the greatest, greatest, greatest dancer that I will have ever seen in my life may end up being, like, a backup dancer at the, at the Oscar musical number, right? And so, like... Let me tell you, it is Allison Holker from season two of So You Can't <laughs> Dance. <laughs> Uh, fair enough, fair enough. So, I mean, it's like, um, it, it is not necessarily that singing has a quality that music, that dancing doesn't have in the sense that it is, it does not have a, an aggressive and ambitious and self-sacrificing career track that leads to nothing because they both have, not nothing, but leads to like lack of commercial success, right? Because they both have that. But I guess it's the, um... Although I guess you could be a dancer and become a pop star too and not really be a singer. Like is Britney Spears a dancer first and a singer second is a good question. Like how do you classify Britney Spears? Was I, I, was was Michael Jackson a singer or a dancer first? Yeah. You know, are we are we human or are we dancer? <laughs> <laughs> well, Pete, you know who's not human? Uh um uh, is it uh is it Jerry O'Connell in that episode of Sliders. No. <laughs> you know who's not human is inhuman killing machines. Oh, you know, I should have totally said Jerry O'Connor in Not Quite Human or in My Secret Identity. But yeah, inhuman killing machines, hard to kill robots. They are, they are not man. They are Devo. Uh, they are. <laughs> They are yeah. man. They are robo. And and we're we're going to uh, uh, take a little break. How about and and you guys can go. You know, I don't know. Uh, head to the can or have a drink of water or something like that. And we're going to uh, come back in just a second with our interview with Marshall Weber uh, of Terminator the Second. What say you to that, Markley? I think um, you did an incredible job of segueing from so you think you can dance to Terminator and. Uh, you deserve uh, all the credit in the world for that. So you think you can terminate, 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 terminate. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, we are here with Marshall Weber, the impresario behind the Terminator the Second uh, project. I'm so excited to be talking with you, Marshall. Thank you for joining the Overthinking It podcast. Thank you. Uh, I've never been called an impresario before. Thank you for that. <laughs> like, uh, like P.T. Barnum himself, uh, right. you've, you've you know, done this. So uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar yet with the project, um, what is Terminator the Second? Uh, Terminator the Second uh, is a, a full-length stage play, and the uh, script is ter- it's Terminator 2. And it's been rewritten uh, using only lines and phrases from Shakespeare plays. So you've taken uh, you've taken the plot of Terminator Two, right? And and d- you're telling a, a similar story to that, or the same story as that? The same story. Uh huh. Um, down beat by beat, you've broken mm-hmm. it down, and and but the only thing that ever comes out of a character's mouth uh, was written by Shakespeare. Uh, in the 1590s or 1600s. That's correct. Uh, with the only thing that was changed were certain uh, proper nouns, uh, pronouns, and when necessary, corresponding verb tenses. I see. So, uh, I, uh, for example, in your, in your trailer, which, which anyone can see at TerminatorTheSecond.com, um, I, I see that someone says uh, one of my favorite lines from Shakespeare, let this pernicious hour stand a accursed in the calendar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's the occasion for that, for that uh, particular utterance? Uh, that would be Judgment Day. 
<laughs> it would. Like, where, where does that come up? What scene does that correspond to in the movie? Uh, that's actually in the intro. Uh, when Sarah Connor does a little voiceover where she kind of sets the stage uh, for the rest of the story. Gotcha. Yeah. And she's just sort of introducing us to the concept of what, you know, what Judgment Day is, uh, what happened, uh, how the Earth is now uh, beset by a war uh, from machines that we've created. And um, her son, John Connor, has sent back a robot through time uh, to help stop Skynet from ever going online. Oh, so it sounds like not only have you transposed the la- the language sentence by sentence, beat by beat, into Shakespeare, it seems like you've also adopted some Shakespearean storytelling methods uh, in, and kind of combined them and crisscrossed them with the storytelling methods of Terminator stories? Um... Hmm. I don't quite understand the question. Oh, I mean, I guess I put a question mark at the end of a statement, uh, which you shouldn't have done. Uh, Well, let me rephrase. Like, the idea of a a theatrical prologue and a theatrical epilogue, right? Like, yeah, Terminator 2 has, especially an epilogue. I don't remember its prologue off the top of my head, but I I thought it might have been text, right? And then then the other elements are sort of introduced gradually throughout the movie. Um, oh, for because, a muse yeah. of steel that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, all I'm going to do is interpose lines from Shakespeare into this into this entire podcast. So I hope everyone is uh, uh, ready for that. I'm ready. <laughs> Well, anyway, that's that's the thing that interested me the most about this project and hearing about it, which is even if it's not by design, I'd imagine taking the Shakespearean language and putting it into this this play would result because form and function are related, right? Like the words that you choose affect it the way you think, right? And, and uh, the, all the different sort of discourses that we like to talk about discourse a lot, a lot on the podcast. Drink. And, yeah, sure. exactly. And uh, we have a drinking game, of course. And, and whenever we say drink, just drink. So that's a drinking game. Oh, but no. Uh, <laughs> but I would, no, I was just wondering because it seems like having an impresario, right, is something that you would have in a play, but you wouldn't necessarily have in a Terminator movie, right? And um, right. I mean, these things just sort of come naturally once you start incorporating the language. It just sort of flows. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, Shakespeare used a lot of metaphor. Um, so it actually wasn't that difficult to um to take the the descriptions that he used that he would apply uh in his plays and sort of transpose them onto what uh terminator was talking about uh probably the most difficult part was when terminator is explaining to sarah and john connor while they're riding in the jeep uh towards south Seda's desert hideout he's he's basically explaining what happened how um, you know, Skynet went live, and when it became self-aware, it immediately knew that it had to destroy man to save itself. Uh, so it had it basically attacked Russia, and this set off a chain reaction where nuclear uh, nuclear chain reaction where Russia then had to attack us. Um, you know, I can remember working through the the project, and that was sort of uh, this nagging thought in my mind: like, gosh, how how am I going to tell that part? Uh, because that's, you know, he's talking a lot about uh, technology and, and the sort of things that Shakespeare could have never really dreamed of, much less addressed in any of his plays. Uh, but, but somehow it was able to work because his language is, um, 
it's it's amazing how how easily it can be applied to you know modern day uh, thought processes and how we talk. No, it's so interesting to hear you say words like it's 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 like easy to adapt the language into this because you know looking at the excerpt of the script that you sent along with all the footnotes and in just like a, one short exchange you're pulling in um, you're pulling in dialogue from. You know, five or six different works, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. just, can you just speak a little bit about just the, the process for assembling all of this? Was there just a lot of, like, word searches through Shakespeare text? Like, were you already super familiar with these and could just had a sense of where to grab stuff? Um, well, the process worked like this, and I didn't do it all alone. I had an associate of mine. He did about 20% of it. Uh, but we worked together, and, and essentially what we did was Obviously, first got very familiar with Terminator 2. Um, yes. Watched it several times. And, um, and then had a, a Word document. And it had two columns. And on the left, in the left column was the script of Terminator 2. Uh, just pulled off the internet. And we had it divvied up into, into the different scenes. And then the right-hand column started out blank. And the process was just... Uh, to read through all of Shakespeare's plays. And anytime any character in the play said, in any of the plays that we're reading, said anything that any of the characters in Terminator 2 could potentially say at any point during the movie, highlight it. That's incredible. Uh, it's, that, it, it was just that painstaking. It was just sort of, you went through everything. It took about nine months. God. <laughs> and, um, so... So, I mean, I'd imagine, I'd have to imagine that there's something about this project that excites you. I mean, you, yes, see, you that's, sound to that's me, exactly yeah. what I was going to ask. I mean, are you see yourself more as a relentless hunter killer robot or like a feisty human rebel who's trying to. I, <laughs> um, I definitely have a, a, a very predatory, very scientific mindset. Uh, uh, okay. When it comes to this sort of thing, I work actually as a, a private investigator, I do criminal defense. Wow. Um, so my job is to comb through all the evidence, uh, you know, the witness statements, um, all the forensic stuff, and just, just find the details, find places where there's holes, where there's gaps, where there's something that doesn't make sense, and use that to cobble together um, a narrative that can help the client. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do um, mostly, we do blue-collar stuff, murder, armed robbery, aggravated assault, kidnapping, things like that. And um, so approaching this script, it was much the same way. You know, you just had to have, sort of have your, your senses peaked at all times. So as you're reading, you know, and these characters of course are talking about something that has nothing to do with the robot invasion from the future. But anytime something slipped out of one of their mouths, uh, you know, and you kind of had to keep the entire story of Terminator 2 in your brain as you're doing this. Anytime something like that slipped out, you go, aha! And mm-hmm. I and, so this throw is- <laughs> and throw it into just throw it into the scene, and then of course there was the process of arranging those lines, figuring out which nouns, pronoun, pronouns, and verb tenses had to be changed, and assembling all that uh, so that it was it was cohesive and that it flowed. 
I like how we're just totally dismissing the fact that you hunt down murderers and kidnappers and be like, let's talk more about how you organize the lines in the Terminator script. Uh, no, that's, that's intense. I do, I do criminal defense. Uh, oh, okay, okay. So you don't hunt down the murderers. You help the murderers I'm get free. hunt down his shoddy piece work. Oh, okay. Uh. So would you think of yourself – okay, well, then let's say this. If you're a person who advocates for those who don't advocate for themselves, let's talk about your attitude towards the Terminator robot. Right, yeah. like, because Terminator Two is the is like the problematizing Terminator movie, right? Where mm-hmm. like the the negative idea, the Terminator as this as this uniform threat in Terminator One, as this you know boogeyman in Terminator One, this monster becomes mm-hmm. this far more complex thing, which is both the antagonist and protagonist, right? right. Um, I mean, do you feel a connection to the Terminator as somebody who goes out to you know protect? people who are kind of on the wrong side of the law or uh like maybe as somebody who might be seen as kind of an anti-hero are you a dark what i'm asking is are you a dark gritty reboot of william shakespeare i don't know i mean are, are we speaking in terms of um of how i approach my job you mean <laughs> well i mean we should talk about the script probably because yeah yeah, yeah. but I, i'm assuming that you do all things in your life the same way because that's what i do pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's I, i've heard that that how you do anything is how you do everything you know i mean you, you guys i've spilled i oftentimes i pour entire gallons of milk into a bowl of cereal because i just don't know when to stop myself <laughs> so, <laughs> All over the floor, all the milk. Oh, geez. Well, that, that's I mean, okay. so I mean, put put another put another way. What Pete what Pete was saying. This this project, um, uh, the finished project, the finished product is is glorious, and it. But it's the sort of idea that um, I know. You know, a lot of the people on overthinking it have had before. The sort of idea, not this specific idea. I, I think your idea is is unique. Um, but like, uh, we've had an idea that's kind of kind of a gimmick, you know, uh, or kind of a, a juxtaposition of two things. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we went through all of X and did it like Y? And um, and we laugh and we refill our drinks and we uh, don't do it right. But the 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 remarkable thing about this to me is is, is that you you carried it out all the way through and carried it into a stage show that, uh, judging from the the uh, trailer that uh, the Vimeo trailer that I saw online was uh, pretty freaking spectacular, you know. And so, like, what 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 for you was the engine, you know, the internal. Um, learning computer, right? The processor inside that that just kept you uh, going through nine months of script writing, and then like if you've ever tried to to produce theater with no money, and goodness knows I have, um, uh-huh. it's uh, it is one of the most dispiriting activities that you know. Oh, the, it's hellish. Yeah, the, that the mind of man has yet conceived. Like how how did you keep going through through all of that? What what kept you uh terminating um wow that's a really good question um one of the things was not really fully understanding what i was getting myself into (laughs) (laughs) gotta be always is um you know writing writing the script was one thing uh sit at home you know drink in hand um in my pajamas and I could take as much time as I needed. Um, but, you know, then once it came to raising the money on Kickstarter, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we raised $10,000 and it's like, well, 
you got $10,000, now you have to do this, you know, because the people who donated are going to want something for their money. And so the, the, the actual act of putting on uh, the stage, you know, it, uh, the stage show, it was, it was actually worked uh, to my advantage that I was kind of going into it blind. Um, because by the end of it, I was, I was uh, you know, had very little sleep. I had ulcers. <laughs> I was just really stressed out, but um, you know the end. The end resulted. It somehow all came together and worked out. And there was a large crew of, of people who were involved, mostly working for free. You know, because they just liked the idea and they thought it was worth it. And it was a labor of love for a lot of people. Marcel, do you have a, um, do you have a theater background? Um. Well, let's see. I did theater in high school. Okay, so so a little bit. You have some familiarity with it. A uh, little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and I I was a ghost tour guide when I got out of college. Um, All right, so that let's, was in- let's stick a pin in that so we can come back to it in a second. <laughs> um, and uh, so, I've you know, in public speaking, and, and I always sort of wanted to focus on the law. Actually, I mean, the, the story, what happened was, is I wanted to be an attorney. And I you know, did mock trial and, and mock mediation. And, and that's a lot of performing too. I didn't actually do theater in college. Uh, but the idea was I was going to go to law school and become an attorney. And, you know, there's a lot of courtroom theater that goes along with that. Well, I got a job in at a law firm in DC and I couldn't stand it. And I realized after that amount of time that I didn't want to be an attorney uh, so I, I came back to Nashville, where I've lived most of my life, and just I had to regroup. I had to figure out what my next step was. And I just remember thinking, I just want to do something. Um, and as simple as that sounds, that really was the drive. It was just, I just want to do something. Do something crazy. Do something, you know, memorable. I guess, you know leave my mark as it were and and that was really the drive um to complete this thing uh that's i mean that's yeah, yeah fantastic so um this is a question that i've been uh, really curious to get your take on um which is the sort of enduring appeal of this movie um and i say that i think uh people uh you know can generally agree that this movie is timeless it's classic um not everybody might be as obsessed about it as i am but um you know that this movie has taken on legs uh that other you know action movies of its time haven't for a variety of reasons um and i was thinking as well of another staged adaptation of terminator 2 uh which is called terminator 2 t-o-o judgment play mm-hmm. um i don't know if you're familiar with this it's like a i've heard about it it's it's a farcical uh, retelling of, of Terminator 2 uh, and they get someone from the audience to play <laughs> the role of the Terminator of Arnold Schwarzenegger's right. character every night. It's, it's a riot. It's a hoot. Um, but uh, when I'm thinking about Terminator 2 and it's like inspired these two different uh, stage shows, it's like there's something very special going on here um, and I'm trying to figure out what exactly that is. Um, I think part of it's generational. You know that yeah. that uh, you know men of a certain age, our age, basically, you know, sort of in the thirties, forties, um, you know, grew up with this movie. Uh, right. You know, made it, made quite an impression on us, and a sort of our sense of heroism and, and manliness, and also what what a young boy can do. 
Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, but I want to hear your take on like, you know, why this movie, why is this really uh, stuck in the collective imagination for so long? Um, well, yeah, I mean, aside from it, it just kind of being one of those hallmark movies that uh, our generation grew up on, you know, it's it's the sort of story where as we, uh, as our civilization progresses and technology uh, becomes more and more ever-present in our lives and we become more dependent on it, um, it's, it's a story that's that just becomes more and more relevant as time goes on. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's something, you know, you'll constantly see references to Terminator 2, Skynet, and Cyberdyne. Uh, when, if you're reading an article about the, the latest advancements uh, in, in drone warfare and, um, you know, the idea of computers making kill decisions. And things like that. And, you know, and this is, what, the movie's 22 years old now? And that's still, nothing else seems to have quite trumped Terminator 2 in popular culture when we're having serious discussions about where we're going with with military technology and technology in general. Do you feel the same way about Shakespeare? (laughs) Like has that thing? Do you feel Shakespeare is relevant? And do you feel because I hear you talk about it? it it's funny. I'm laughing because it's you know this like there's you know every year that passes it becomes more relevant. Nothing has ever been able to trump it. Of the two things that I'm thinking about, I'm talking about the Terminator movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah. I mean, I'm not to belittle it because I agree with you, but it's like um, do you? I mean, because I feel like there's two ways to there's two ways to approach it. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of ways, but from my perspective, there's two ways to approach yeah, it. Just one. A- there's just two. One is that the sh- the inclusion of Shakespeare is uh, is, a, is a joke because the Shakespeare is so alienating, right? That it, it causes us to see the Terminator material from a new perspective, right? It's a Verfram Dunks effect where you see the Terminator from a weird place and you recognize the familiar in a strange way. Drink, right? Yeah, exactly. Or Right, it's that there is something relevant about the Shakespeare. There is something current about the Shakespeare that somehow informs our understanding of the Terminator material in a more kind of straight down the middle, positive way, rather there's than a, a confounding, alienating. Way. There's a, there's another way to think about it, Pete. Though I think that that there is in in the Terminator, uh, uh, sorry, in the Shakespeare. Yeah, it's a it's a play, not a play. That sounds trivializing, and I really don't mean it to be that. It's a it's a um, rhetorical move for legitimacy, right? That is to say, arrogating uh, uh, to the to the Terminator franchise the the legitimacy of Shakespeare because as it turns out it's very culturally persuasive um, and and very decisive right mm-hmm. yeah and um, well I think you know I, I would say that of course Shakespeare is, is timeless and, and relevant and will continue to be I hope for generations and generations to come as has done and I think it's because of Shakespeare's ability uh, to sort of break down the human condition and make it relatable. And, you know, these inner struggles uh, that we all have um, about these large philosophical quandaries, I don't think many people have come close to doing what Shakespeare could do to, to ex- basically... When one of his characters says something, you can think, gosh, it's like I've always thought that, and yet I've never thought that at the same time. You know, it was so 
his characters are so human. Well, sure. I and, mean, and, and I mean, it's uh, that's I, I would say that that's characteristic of Shakespeare, and he he sort of operates through what Harold Bloom calls self overhearing, um, mm-hmm. being kind of surprised by being surprised as though the 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 words just kind of flowed from you unmediated as a kind of uh, as a kind of stenography of your brain without mm-hmm. without subtext or without any sort of um, guile at all, and that you could kind of come out with something and be sort of surprised. Uh, be sort of surprised by it, and I, I think that's that's interesting to think of. I mean, that's interesting to think of in terms of um, hunter killer robots, right? Because just as Shakespeare is non subtextual, and this is a problem that a lot of actors have. And, and Marshall, I don't know if you know this, but I have an acting background, so does Pete. Um, uh, mm-hmm. A lot of actors have acting Shakespeare these days because they, you know people are so influenced by Stanislavski and by psychological realism, and so they think in terms of psychological intentions and objectives and what you say versus what you mean. And Shakespeare does not work like that at all. It's all right there on the surface. It really is. It really is. Um, uh, people mean, people say what they mean, you know, and um, and, and when they're being villainous, uh, they don't say what they mean, but the audience is in is in on that, you know, um, right. But uh, just just as Shakespeare is non subtextual, so too are hunter killer robots non subtextual, <laughs> right? That is to say, there's no there's no guile in the uh, in the um, in the Arnold Schwarzenegger character, anyway, it's he's very straightforward. He has an objective, you know, to right. terminate or to protect. Uh, there are very basic uh, decisions, kind of yes/no inflection points, like "come with me if you if you want to live," you know, right. and. Um, and uh, it it operates just like Shakespeare in that way. And and just finally to wrap up this absolutely ridiculous tangent that I've gone on, I, I would say that um, that uh, the T one thousand might represent something like twentieth century psychological realism. I was going to say that. I was going to say that <laughs> <laughs> because the T one thousand is the person who, uh, uh, rather, is the hunter killer robot who method actor like embodies. The actual bodies of the person that he's imitating. You know? What is the T one thousand if not the magical if? Right. If not, <laughs> if not the perfect method actor. I mean, Strasbourg would have had a field day with the T one thousand, right? Like no one else. You know, Brando, uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Salome Jens. You know, none of these people would have um, ha- would have measured up if uh, Stanislavski has gotten his hand. Uh, if uh, if uh, Lee Strasberg uh, rather had gotten his hands on a, a T one thousand. Matt, Matt, the T one thousand's human mimicry circuitry and liquid metal uh, doppelganger technology is not a method; it is a system. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, or as Terminator says in our play, uh, he does it with a better grace, but I do it more natural. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you reminded me when you're talking about uh, guileless. Uh, there's a scene. Um, you know, you remember in Terminator 2 when um, Terminator is basically explaining to John Connor that the reason they can't go and warn Todd and Janelle, his foster parents, is because T-1000, um, is his next move is to go there and imitate, kill them, imitate them, and wait for him to come home. Um, and 
you know, Terminator is explaining all this very matter-of-factly, and John Connor is just freaking out, naturally. And uh, he says, what, shall he stab her as she sleeps? And Terminator just says, most likely. <laughs> and then he keeps on going. Um, you know, but there is that, as, as the play progresses, we see uh, that the Terminator becomes more human, more sympathetic. Um, and, and I think it's interesting because the, the arc of this play is to watch this robot become more human but a lot of the questions that are posed by the story is, is are we becoming more like robots? You know, not only physically, but in our, our lack of humanity. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, the, uh, creating, we're creating robots now that will conduct our, our wars for us and will make kill decisions for us. Right. And uh, so I think it's interesting that you see Terminator sort of sliding back toward humanity and we're just pushing on to become robots. Yeah. What people often uh, forget about this movie is that uh, the, the, sort of the Sarah Connor character arc in this movie is that she essentially becomes a Terminator, right, in her uh, mm. quest to go off and kill uh, Miles Dyson, right? Like she has the sunglasses on, uh, she is dehumanized, um, and she uh, is lacking in empathy. Uh, up, uh, that human spirit up, up until the point where she uh, tries to kill the guy and, and breaks down and can't do it when, right. uh, when John and the Terminator come in. Um, so on this note, though, uh, about the sort of the humanization of the Terminator, uh, I have a very specific question about one of the piece of a key piece of dialogue in Terminator mm-hmm. 2. Um, now I'm going to download the, the video. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. I'm, gonna, I will, I'm going to relish probably every single line of dialogue and your choices for them, but I really want to know now, <laughs> yeah. what does the Terminator say to John when he says, uh, I know now why you cry, but it is something I can never do. I was going to ask that. <laughs> uh, let me, gosh, I can't remember verbatim. I have a script right here, though. Uh, well, we can stall for you for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I, 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 we can I, say also, our other favorite lines from Terminator 2. <laughs> <laughs> I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Well, uh, see if I can remember. I can't find the script. Uh, let's see. Terminator, he, he, in our play, he sees Sarah Connor sort of crying as she's woken up from the apocalyptic nightmare dream. And uh, he says, why do you weep? You know, he doesn't understand. And uh, John Connor says, to weep is to make less the depth of grief. Uh, sorrow concealed like an oven stopped doth burn the heart to cinders where it is. Dost thou understand me, man? And <laughs> uh, Terminator replies, uh, no. Uh, every bit of, I'm paraphrasing now, I can't remember this line exactly. Every bit of my body's moisture serves to quench my furnace-burning heart. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love it. Hey, can I point out, can I draw attention to something that's come up a little subtly, but many times, the discussion? I, sure. I, notice, I, I notice that you refer to the character as Terminator. Pete, I was just going to say yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> also and T-1000. Yeah, Terminator and T-1000, as if those were those are proper names, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, of course, the name of the first uh, movie is The Terminator, right? right. And we, uh, we think, of, can you speak a little, is, is that a trans, is that, oh, as, I'm, I'm sputtering about it. Can you just talk about that? Can you talk about your thinking behind that choice? Um, you mean just 
the way when I speak about it, how I refer to him as Terminator. Yeah, as opposed as the Terminator or the T eight hundred. The T yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I'll always say, you know, the T-1000, uh, but I don't put the the in front of Terminator. I guess I really hadn't thought of it. Maybe it's because Terminator, you know, seems more human in a way. Uh, seems more like a person. Sure. And, um, and it, also, I played the T-1000. Um, so, you know, and I like to walk around and say, introduce myself as the Marshal instead of Marshal. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really. Know. I don't really know why I do that. I just say Terminator. You know, he is the T eight hundred. Yes. Yeah. But it's also. I mean, he's he's a ter- he's not only the Terminator. I mean, from from uh, uh, Sarah and John Connor's point of view, he's the Terminator because he's the one that you know interferes in their lives. But he's just a Terminator. He's just a Terminator. That's right. And yeah. there's there's many just like him. This but is my Terminator. The there there are many like it, but this one is mine. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and he's um, yeah, but but it it really does say something profound about the way we think about uh, the way we think about character in terms of individuality and in terms of agency uh, and in terms of subjectivity, right? To to call him Terminator grants him all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, in fact, no, right? In fact, if you take the story at face value, um, he, he doesn't have any of those things, individuality or uh, uh, agency, really, because he's following programming, or th- though he has some flexibility in terms of implementing the, the requirements of his program, he has an objective, right? And, um, right. Or subjectivity, uh- you know he doesn't he doesn't have a he doesn't have a unique experience that is distinct from reality because he doesn't have a you yeah. know i don't know um, a subconscious or a you know individual well, you know and sarah and john there's there's a deleted scene it wasn't in the theatrical release of terminator 2 but if you have the dvd it's in there it's when they go to the garage after they escape from a hospital and basically they John Connor takes the chip out of his brain so he can set it to learn mode. And Sarah Connor tries to take the chip and smash it with a hammer um, because she wants to destroy him. And, uh, you know, John Connor says, why should he be killed? Um, You know, assigning agency. And Sarah Connor says, uh, he is but a shell of a man who hath not the life of a man. So uh, John Connor, it's like he's he's always trying to it's like he can't accept that it's just a robot and it's not a person. So he can't call it the Terminator. He's just going to call him Terminator like that's his name. Yeah, that's an interesting choice that. uh, So you did include that in the stage performance, that scene. It's a yeah, it's a very important scene. I'm not sure why James Cameron chose to leave it out of the theatrical release. Uh, I, I I mean I think that as um, I remember seeing the deleted scenes for Terminator Two in the D, uh, on D, on the DVD, and I remember feeling like they um, they softened the tone of it a little bit too much, like the sort of little bits because a bunch of them are kind of additional layer, layers of explanation 
Right, and, and Terminator mm-hmm. 2 does have a fair amount of sort of suspenseful movement that carries it forward. And so I felt like, uh, and, and I remember the tension of the movie dropping out during a lot of these discussions. Right, stay, right, stay like, on the boat, in essence. Yeah, yeah. It basically just is like, we need to focus on getting to the next scene. It, well, but I, It's like the, the extra hour in Apocalypse uh, Now Redux is very beautiful, but but stay on the freaking boat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, sorry, um, Pete, I interrupted you. Oh, so, so I, I want to say, like, in Terminator 2, and this is, again, just talking more talking about the movie, I don't know if you even my own reading of the movie, I guess, there is a sort of tertiary state. There are three states uh, that the Terminator could be in. You know, one is that being, the other is that the Terminator is a robot, and the third is that the Terminator is a father. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, because we talk about, um, and I think this is accurate, that, that Terminator 2 and society's religious Terminator 2, uh, they crisscross. The Terminator 2 is about a machine that b- moves towards humanity, and our experience of it is of a humanity that is moving towards machines. It is interesting that at the completion of the Terminator's arc, uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Connor understands the Terminator to be the ideal father figure who mm-hmm. has accomplished everything that is necessary of being a father and will be far superior to any human father. And I believe without a hint of irony, Right, like certainly with it, well, with with an irony of sadness, right, an irony that it will never be achieved again. <clears throat> Excuse me, but not with like a a sort of well, of course, you know, a father must be human to be a father, right? right. Like, like, and I feel like that's an interesting because I, we've also in our past discussions of Terminator and of the Terminator and Terminator Two talked about how they're about you know motherhood, pregnancy, and motherhood, respectively, <clears throat> and about the anxieties of of a woman fearing the destructive and creative powers of her own body and the lack of control she has over them uh, being represented as like you know this menace this future that looms large in front of everybody that she has this connection to that she never asked for right um and it's just i don't know terminator 2's relationship with fatherhood and uh, i mean do do you do you bring that into your play because the she has a speech about how the terminator is the best dad that she can imagine do you remember yeah. any of the shakespeare that you used to talk about that or how um, you actually it? you know now that i think of it i'm here in front of my computer and i have the play here i mean i have the video and she does address this uh and i can play it right now you can uh, play it into the microphone ooh yeah, I mean, I can just play it off my computer. Let's see. It's when she wakes up. We're going to see if this works. We're going to totally see if this works. <laughs> this, is, this will be a technological first for the overthinking podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm about to find it here. Just one second. Here we go. Okay. Let me know how this sounds. Terminator. The one is infinite as all. 
The other blank is nothing. All right. Well, <laughs> that is uh, that's an excerpt from from the uh, from the video of the stage show yeah. Terminator the Second. And uh, Marshall, you said um, uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but this video uh, I know is going to be released on uh, November the first. It's available at TerminatorTheSecond.com. Uh, the video right. will be available as a DRM free video file download, uh, as well as the uh, the score. Uh, by the Proto Men, uh, which will also be available as a download, and there will be a discount if you uh, buy them both together. So that's at TerminatorTheSecond.com on November the 1st, uh, and that is an excerpt from that that you have just heard. By the way, speaking of the Proto Men, uh, it's, we should mention that not only did they provide the original score to this, which I'm really looking forward to listening to, they also did a Mega Man rock opera. Is that yeah. a right, the right way to characterize that? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we need to find the we need to listen to the Mega Man Rock Opera and then find the Proto Men and bring them onto the <laughs> podcast. Would yeah. love to talk about that. They're they're fantastic. They're consummate showmen. Their live show is incredible. Their fans are rabid and devoted. I mean, their, their concerts are are some of the funnest you know musical experiences you can have. Really, I'm so excited for this. I can't wait to uh, <laughs> to download this. Oh my god. Just congratulations on your achievement. I think I've said this before, but uh, we are, are so incredibly impressed uh, by what you've done and by the, um, the the trailer that we've seen and then the, the clip that you played from there. It sounds like it has all really come together um, into something very special. Thank you. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, Marshall. Thanks for making the time yeah. and joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, great. Uh, well, if you have anything that you would like to add about Terminator the Second, uh, and and remember, you can find that video at TerminatorTheSecond.com on uh, the first of November. Um, you can uh, uh, you can uh, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com. You can uh, call two zero three two eight five six four zero one uh call or text two oh three two eight five six four zero one or leave a comment on the show notes uh for this episode we will be back with another overthinking it podcast next week um actually uh, i we're we are planning a, another special guest next week uh but uh, uh, d- uh, nothing, nothing about that yet. Not going to spoil the surprise. Um, and uh, we were always on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. <laughs>